I want to introduce to you this morning, if you don't know, Neil Harden. If you do, give me a hand. This is Neil Harden. Neil has been a member here at Grace for a few years. Um, he's going to be preaching the last section of 1 Corinthians 7 for us this morning. Um, he graduated last year from Talbot and is um, applying for PhD programs to uh, study, continue the study in theology, in particular, fancy word, Christological anthropology, which is a fancy way of saying, how can Jesus' humanity that he took on help us more accurately and helpfully understand our own humanity that we've been created with by God. Uh, anyway, so uh, one thing that sets Neil apart from everyone else who has preached here at Grace, he's the only one, I think, who has an undergrad degree in metallurgical engineering. Raise your hand if you know what that is. Okay. It doesn't mean I was correct in the first service that he knows how to make swords, but he knows <laughs> how that's done. Um, yes. I love Neil. He loves Jesus. He loves the church capital C. He loves this church, Grace, very much. He's served here faithfully. He loves God's Word. He's a student of God's Word. He's insightful and thoughtful. He's a man of integrity. He has an excellent bass voice and lower notes <laughs> that I'm able to sing. And I'm really thankful for you preaching here this morning. So Why, thank you. You, you can tell by his <laughs> rich baritone. <laughs> well, good morning. Uh, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 25. So I want to mention at the outset uh, two books that I found extremely helpful uh, in preparing uh, for this sermon. A large portion of what we'll be talking about this morning is the topic of singleness. So I would recommend to you these two books. Oops, sorry. So two books. One is Seven Myths About Singleness by Sam Alberry, and then also Redeeming Singleness by uh, Barry Danielak. Both very, very good resources. So I'm also just going to say at the outset, I find it highly ironic that this passage fell just after Valentine's Day of all, of all days, or as some people call it, Singles Awareness Day. Um, <laughs> but I have it on good authority from Kenny that this was not intentional. Um, so let's go ahead and start reading verse 25, 1 Corinthians 7. It says, Now concerning but the, the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord." If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. 
But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So to say that this passage that we just read is a bit confusing or perhaps even contentious would be a bit of an understatement. Just a cursory reading like we just did can probably leave you with more questions than answers. Who is Paul trying to address here? What is this present distress or crisis that he mentions? Does he really mean what he says when he says, he who refrains from marriage will do even better, or that a widow would be happier if she remains as she is, that is, unmarried? How much of this applies to the Corinthian situation and how much applies to us? Ultimately, we're left wondering, what does Paul really think about marriage and singleness? And so before I get into the content of the passage, I want to think, or I think it's necessary to make a few preliminary remarks. First, I want to be clear about what the relationship ought to be between our doctrines of marriage and singleness. So when we speak about singleness and marriage in the church, they can be spoken about in such a way that makes it seem like they're in competition or conflict with one another. Speaking highly of singleness can be misinterpreted as denigrating marriage, while uh, speaking highly of marriage can be misinterpreted as not highly or not properly valuing singleness. The truth is, singleness and marriage ought to be complementary doctrines to one another, not conflicting or competing doctrines. They should reinforce and support one another. So today, if I speak positively of one, I do not mean it as a slight against the other. My goal is to paint a picture in which singleness and marriage are each viewed as high callings worthy of the Christian life. Second, I want to address the married people in the congregation. You might be tempted to think that because much of the focus today is on singleness, that this will have no application to you. And let me give you a few reasons why that is not true. First, because singleness and marriage are complementary doctrines, how we view one will directly impact how we view the other. So if you have a wrong view of singleness, then chances are there's probably something wrong with your view of marriage as well. And the opposite is true as well. So consequently, having a biblical view of singleness could very well improve your marriage. Second, even if you yourself are not single, chances are someone you know is, someone whom you are called to minister to and love. Now just by a show of hands, how many in this room are unmarried? Wow, it seems like almost a third, if not a little bit more. So when you think of this group called singles, your first thought is probably someone relatively young, never married, and looking to be married. But singles also include those who are older, never married, and still looking to be married. It includes those who were once married, so widows, widowers, those who are divorced. Uh, it also includes those who choose to remain single for one reason or another, such as those who wrestle with same-sex attractions. Those of you who know me well or saw the talk I gave to the youth group know just how deeply that particular issue has impacted my own life, and how it intersects with my singleness can be quite complicated and quite painful at times. 
So if your theology of singleness or marriage is deficient, you will be ill-equipped to come alongside the third of this congregation in here and be able to help them discern what ought to be their response uh, to Paul's words in this passage and their own vocation. Lastly, let me say a quick word to the singles in the congregation. Some of what I will say today will perhaps bring up some painful memories. We often bear the brunt of comments which unintentionally tell us that we aren't good enough the way we are, and we won't be until we're married. Singleness is often treated like a disease for which a cure must be sought. Simultaneously, though, I hope that today's sermon will be challenging for you. We also bear the unique burden to demonstrate the sufficiency of Christ to a world which tells us that we are insufficient without marriage or sex. So I want you to use this time as an opportunity to reflect on your own heart's attitude towards singleness and marriage. Do you view your singleness as a curse on your life or as an opportunity to serve the Lord and serve others? So that said, let's, I want to briefly review the flow of thought in this entire chapter as this will help us understand our passage today. So way back in verse 1, Paul wrote, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So that phrase is most likely a quotation or a summary of something that the Corinthian church had written to Paul. And some in the Corinthian church thought that they could embrace their, uh, or, or enhance rather, their spiritual standing by refraining from sexual relations altogether. Rob Lister called this the sexless spirituality hypothesis. And chapter 7 is uh, Paul's response to this, to this hypothesis. So verses 1 through 16, where Rob preached, dealt with the application of this question to those who are already married, dealing mainly with the topics of sex within marriage as well as divorce. Uh, verses 17 to 24, uh, which Jackson preached on, and as he said, those verses are the meat and cheese of this theological sandwich that is 1 Corinthians 7. And so here, in that section, Paul lays out his main point of the entire chapter, which we would do well to keep in mind. On one hand, our call, that is, our present circumstances, like singleness and marriage, are not the most important thing about us. Conversely, on the other hand, our call, that is, our redemptive and salvific call, our identity in Christ, is what is most important about us. And this brings us finally to our current passage today in verses 25 to 40. Here, Paul applies these principles to the betrothed or those who are engaged. Like their counterparts earlier in the chapter, they are also wondering whether it would be a good idea to follow through and marry or whether they should break off their engagement or even perhaps stay engaged until there's a better time to marry. And so that's the basis of his comments which follow. So let's go back to verse 25 and uh, start reading again. He says, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. So immediately, a few things jump out here which need to be clarified. First, when he says, I have no command from the Lord, uh, this is similar to what we saw earlier in the chapter when Paul spoke about divorce, where he says, I, not the Lord. Uh, there were certain situations where Paul did not have a direct command from the traditions of Christ's received teaching. Uh, but there are other situations, um, I should say, there were, there were situations where he did, and then there are other situations like the one we have here where he did not. 
So he's, but this does not mean that he's giving a mere opinion which we can just ignore. This is not uninspired scripture. He's still speaking authoritatively as an apostle under God's spirit. In fact, he brackets this entire passage with a claim to authority by saying that he is both trustworthy and that he has God's spirit. Simultaneously, though, he is leaving a lot of leeway and freedom in how his words are applied. For example, in verse 35, he says, I say this not to lay any restraint upon you. Or in verse 40, he says, in my judgment. Or even way back in verse 7, he says, "All that I, I wish that all were as I am, but each has his own gift from God. So Paul recognizes the complexities of life and isn't going to lay down hard and fast rules beyond what the word of God would dictate. The challenge for us today is looking behind the specific, advi- the specific advice he gives to the Corinthians and seeking to discover what general principles he's drawing from. So the second thing that jumps out here in these two verses is what he says is the present distress or crisis. Uh, what is that? As you might imagine, since we don't have the original letter that the Corinthians wrote to Paul, we don't exactly know. Uh, But to the best of our knowledge, this was probably some event or circumstance which highly influenced the Corinthians' questions to Paul. And there are numerous theories about what this is, but one of the more popular ones is that this was a famine that was taking place in Corinth. Uh, Extra-biblical literature spoke about famines in this region around the same time that Paul was thought to have written uh, 1 Corinthians. Additionally, it could make sense in part of why he recommends singleness. If you're single, you only have to worry about feeding yourself, whereas if you're married and have children, you have to worry about feeding them too. Nevertheless, though, whatever this present distress is, it's clearly shaping Paul's advice, which he is giving to the Corinthians. And as much as we might like, Paul here is not giving a treatise or a theology of marriage and singleness all of his thoughts on the subject. Uh, He's giving pastoral advice to a particular congregation, but he is doing so while drawing from true and godly principles. And again, this is what we need to discern if we're going to apply it to our own lives. So we see in verses 27 and 28, he gives them specific advice for their present situation. He says, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. But moving on into verses 29 to 31, we start to see the main principle from which he is drawing from. He says, this is what I mean, brothers. Saying, in other words, or this is my point. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. These verses are the crux of this passage and what he is really driving at. But the question arises, what is Paul actually saying here? Is he really saying that if you have a wife, you should pretend as if she doesn't exist? Maybe that's what some of you are tempted to do sometimes, but is that what Paul is really advocating? Or is he saying that we shouldn't experience joy and sorrow from life's circumstances, or that we shouldn't engage in commerce? No, this would blatantly contradict what he said earlier in this chapter and what he says elsewhere in scripture. 
So what is he saying? The key lies in looking at the first and last sentences of this section where it mentions uh, in verse 29, the appointed time has grown very short on one end, and then verse 31, the present form of this world is passing away. Paul is using these day-to-day activities in our present life as a means to draw our attention towards the future reality and imminence of Christ's second coming. The appointed time that he mentions here is referring to Christ's second coming. And when he says that the present form of this world is passing away, he is referring to the reshaping and remaking of the heavens and the earth that will eventually come to pass. So Paul's main point here, which is the main point of this whole passage, is that we should be living in light of Christ's coming kingdom. We should, as I've titled this sermon, be living in light of eternity. And this nicely complements the main point of this entire chapter, which we saw in verses 17 to 24. If our earthly and temporary circumstances are not what is most important in our life, then what is of ultimate importance is what is eternal. Now, on the other hand, Paul isn't saying that our marriages aren't important, that our emotional highs and lows aren't important, that our jobs aren't important, or that we should live completely detached from the world altogether. Indeed, numerous other scripture call, call us to steward these responsibilities well. But what Paul is saying is that these things are not what, are, what is ultimate. We should not be deriving our ultimate meaning or significance from such things. It is from Christ's eternal redemption and eternal kingdom that we derive such things, that we derive our meaning and significance. Now, there is one other thing I wish to point out about this section, and that is the fact that marriage is included among the things which Paul lists as being a part of the present form of this world. He says, let those who have wives live as though they had none, for the present form of this world is passing away. And this is very much in line with the rest of Scripture. In Matthew 29, or 22, 29 to 30, the Sadducees who denied the resurrection were trying to trick Jesus by asking him that if the resurrection were true, if, uh, what about a woman who had been married seven times in this life? In the resurrection, whose wife would she be? And his response probably stunned them. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And uh, the same uh, occurrence in Luke uh, 20, 34 to 36, he says, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. So marriage, that is little m marriage, uh, that Rob talked about in his sermon, is a part of the present form of this world that is passing away. However, it also serves, as Paul writes about in Ephesians 5, as a beautiful picture and image of the eternal marriage, that is big M marriage, between Christ and the church. To say that our earthly marriages aren't eternal might be a hard truth for some, For many, our marriages have been a deep source of joy, happiness, blessing, and sanctification. Yet, I want to say, as much of this is right and good to take joy in our earthly marriages and how God uses them in our lives to bless and sanctify us, our marriages should never be a source of our eternal hope in Christ.
earthly marriage will pass away. And when we have perfect unity with our Savior and with one another as brothers and sisters, you won't miss your earthly marriage one bit, including the sexual intimacy and any other benefits that came along with it, because Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of our desires. So let's move on to verse 32 in 1 Corinthians 7. So after providing this framework for and lens through which we should be looking at the question of marriage versus singleness, Paul gives some very practical wisdom. Remember back in verse 28, Paul said, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles and I would spare you that. Here in verses 32 to 35, he expands on what he means by that. Verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So when Paul says that those who are married will have worldly troubles, this should come as no surprise to anyone who's been married longer than a week. Um, As anyone who is married can tell you, despite the numerous joys and blessings of marriage, marriage is still difficult, at times extremely difficult. That's just what happens when you unite two sinful human beings. There will inevitably be one party who who sees things different from the other. One party might say, the trash is full. Can you please take it out? The other party proceeds to shove the trash down in the trash can and replies, whatever do you mean? (laughs) And there are, of course, more serious examples as well. There will be one party who acts selfishly but may not even realize it. One party who loses self-control and is overcome by anger, frustration, sadness, or despair. One party who knows exactly how to hurt the other party and how to make it hurt the most. These are just the realities of marriage. So when thinking through the decision about whether these betrothed or engaged Christians in Corinth should follow through with their marriage or break off their engagement and remain single or even just waiting, Paul wants them to be fully aware of all sides of this issue. Yet, it's also fair to say that he is making his audience particularly aware about the advantages of singleness. After all, back in verse 7, he said that he wishes everyone was single as he was, uh, but everyone has his own gift. He recognizes that this isn't feasible for everyone. So what are the advantages of singleness that this passage uh, brings out? There are four advantages I draw from this passage as well as from the wider biblical narrative. First, singleness is free from the anxieties of marriage. Now, he isn't saying that single life is carefree and that there aren't things to worry about. As a single individual, I can tell you that's not true. What he is saying, though, is that singleness is free from the anxieties that particularly come with marriage. It's a fairly simple yet profound truth which single people can often take for granted and which married people can fail to give proper heed to when counseling single individuals towards marriage. We can become so infatuated with the ideal marriage that we only focus on the blessings of marriage while forgetting to mention the extreme difficulties that often come with it. And we would do well to find a proper balance between these two extremes when talking about singleness and marriage. 
And so this leads me into my second advantage of singleness. Because single people are free from the anxieties of marriage, singleness affords us the ability to be anxious about the things of the Lord. Those are Paul's words. Now, when we hear the word anxious, we tend to think about being worried or having a fear that comes from not trusting in the Lord. This isn't what Paul means by anxiety. Paul is using a bit of a play on words here. The the word that is translated to be anxious for can also mean to care for, to be concerned for, or even to meditate on. So the main idea is one of attention, something which weighs heavily on your mind. So because single people are free from the anxieties of marriage, singles can have what Paul calls here an undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, what this does not mean is that married individuals are incapable of devoting themselves to the Lord. The elders of this church and many married couples I know uh, live out exemplary lives of how to devote themselves to the Lord while being married. And even more generally, every Christian is called to devote themselves to the Lord. But what this is saying very practically is that married people can and must devote an enormous amount of time, energy, and focus to their spouse and to their children too, if they have them. Single individuals do not have such a divide in their focus because they do not have obligations towards a spouse. If we want to go do something, we don't have to check with our spouse first. We can just go do it. If we want to join a church ministry, we can. If a friend calls us in distress and wants to meet up, we can usually drop what we're doing and go minister to them. But, and this is very important, singleness does not merely offer us additional freedoms, a more flexible schedule, or an ability to focus on particular tasks or people without distraction. These benefits come with responsibility. We are called to use our undivided attention for the Lord. And I want to camp on that for a minute. In my opinion, one of the biggest failings of the church in regards to singleness is that we have failed to teach singles that their singleness has a purpose, that their singleness comes with responsibilities, and that their singleness needs to be stewarded. And that this is true regardless of whether you have a desire to marry or not. Instead, the message that is often implied from those in the church is that singleness has no good purpose. And to be fair, our culture doesn't help with this problem. To our culture, singleness is a time for selfishness, immaturity, irresponsibility, and immorality. But this is not the biblical vision of singleness. According to Paul, singleness is an opportunity to serve the Lord with an undivided devotion. So to all the singles in here, I ask, are you stewarding your singleness well and using it for the Lord? Are you using your additional freedom and focus to serve others and to serve the church? Or are you using your singleness in accordance with our culture's values? Again, all these things apply to you regardless of whether you see singleness as temporary or a permanent calling in your life. Now, a third advantage of singleness is that singleness offers us a picture here and now of what our life will be like in eternity. So just as marriage is a picture for how we will one day as a church relate to Christ as the bridegroom, single individuals are a picture of how we will one day individually relate to one another as brothers, as sisters, and as co-heirs with Christ. As we saw earlier from the lips of Christ in the Gospels, singleness is described as our terminal state. Lastly, singleness lived out well 
bears a unique testimony to the gospel. So Barry Danielak, in uh, his book, Redeeming Singleness here, does a masterful job tracing the biblical narrative of marriage and singleness. So in the Old Testament, from the time of Genesis, God created man and woman, commanding them to be fruitful and to multiply. To marry and to have children was an outward sign of God's covenantal blessing and provision with Israel. And throughout the Old Testament, this sign of marriage and having physical descendants anticipated the coming seed of Abraham, the coming of the suffering servant, the Messiah, who was descended from the line of Judah and David. But with the advent of this Messiah, Christ Jesus, and a new, the new covenant which he establishes, this changes everything. Instead of marriage and children being the outward sign of covenantal blessing, we are now given the inward sign of the Holy Spirit. And now all covenantal blessing comes through Christ. Instead of God building a nation through physical procreation, he is now building a kingdom of priests and a holy nation through spiritual procreation and regeneration. And no longer is our inheritance in, tied to a particular land uh, or whether we, have married and we, whether we are married and have descendants in that land. In Christ, we have an imperishable inheritance waiting for us in heaven. So these facts do not diminish marriage or children in any way, but it does mean that they are no longer fundamental to our life in the new covenant as it was in the old covenant. So thus, in the conclusion of his book, uh, Danny Lack writes, like a Christian marriage, or like Christian marriage, let me pull it up here. Like Christian marriage, Christian singleness lived in its fullest expression is a powerful testimony to the gospel. In the unchanging commitment of love and submission expressed between husband and wife, Christian marriage testifies to God's faithful covenantal love toward his people and their submission and reception to his sovereign love. Christian singleness is a testimony to the supreme sufficiency of Christ for all things, testifying that through Christ, life is fully blessed even without marriage and children. It prophetically points to a reality greater than the satisfactions of this present age by consciously anticipating the Christian's eternal inheritance in the kingdom of God. Christian singleness lived as a testimony to this gospel truth is a redeeming singleness. So from these advantages, we can plainly see that singleness is not second best in the sight of God. So let's move on to our final section. Starting verse 36, Paul begins to apply these principles uh, in a way for, that he has just laid out in the preceding verses. Recall what he said in verse 28, but if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Building off that, he likewise says here in verses 36 to 37, if anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. Paul gives them the option to either marry or to remain single, or to remain engaged. Uh, again, he's not trying to bind their conscience one way or the other. Rather, he's leaving it up to their judgment and their discernment based on their present circumstances. This is much the same way we need to operate today when single people ask themselves the question of whether they should marry. And yes, that is a question all singles should ask themselves. 
It should not just be assumed that everyone will marry. Paul summarizes his opinion in verse 38. He says, so then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Now I'm going to let you sit with attention in that verse for a minute and read Paul's concluding remarks in 39 to 40. He says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. So is Paul saying that those who refrain from marriage will always do better? And that a widow who remains single will be happier? Is he privileging singleness as sort of this default position that Christians should take? So we shouldn't let the force of these words pass us by. Paul just spent many verses making the case for why he believes singleness has advantages. Nevertheless, there are a couple of considerations we need to keep in mind. First, I would say that Paul is not making a moral judgment about singleness. He's not saying that singleness is morally superior to marriage, as some have taken it. As we've seen, both singleness and marriage point towards our eternal life in Christ in different ways. Rather, in my view, Paul is making a practical judgment. We have to keep in mind that Paul was addressing a particular congregation in light of present distress in Corinth that we just are unaware of today. Yet, this should not take away from the fact that singleness has advantages, is better in many circumstances, and points towards our eternal life in Christ in ways that marriage can't. Second, it might also be helpful to compare these statements with what Paul says way back in verse 9, where he says that it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So on one hand, Paul says, he who refrains from marriage will do even better, while on the other hand, he says, it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And this creates a certain tension that uh, we have to be okay with. Paul is not here establishing hard and fast rules with no nuance to it. He's establishing general principles of wisdom. And we see this in other parts of scripture as well. For example, here, Proverbs 26, four through five. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. While seemingly contradictory on its face, we know from our own experience that there are times when both of these are true. Sometimes a situation calls for answering a fool according to his folly, while other situations do not. And in a similar way, the betterness of singleness versus the betterness of marriage will largely be determined by a person's individual circumstances. And saying this does not at all detract from the intrinsic betterness of marriage or the intrinsic betterness of singleness. Each person must therefore be able to determine which will be better suited for himself or herself along with the leading of God's spirit and good counsel from those in the church who know their situation well. Lastly, before I conclude, I want to go back to verses 7 through 9, which also addresses singleness. Rob intentionally left some of these aspects, uh, some aspects of this passage unaddressed for me to discuss, so I want to make sure that we cover one more important aspect of singleness that this chapter talks about. So let me read verses 7 through 9. It says, I wish all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. 
But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So we see here in verse 7, Paul, in reference to his own singleness, mentions that each person has their own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. We typically hear this referred to as the gift of singleness. So when we hear, or what we typically think of when we hear gift of singleness, it's usually defined as this supernatural ability to go without sexual fulfillment. However, I think such a definition has several weaknesses. One, it raises sexual fulfillment almost to the level of a necessity and presumes that you need a supernatural gift to go without it. And that's a recipe for sexual immorality, especially for those who desire to be married or have strong sexual desires but aren't able to find a spouse. Second, it defines a gift of the Holy Spirit as an absence of something which God created good. God created sexual desire and marriage as intrinsic goods. So to define the gift of singleness solely by the absence of those goods can make it seem like God is simply withholding something good from a Christian. And this often leads to bitterness and discontentment. Three, it orients the gift towards ourselves and our own desires and emotions rather than towards others. In 1 Corinthians, gifts of the Spirit are given for the edification and service to the church. And fourth, it carries with it this assumption that only those with this gift should remain single. However, this assumption ignores the complexities of life. There are often circumstances beyond our control which makes vocational singleness a wiser decision for some, even if it's only for a time or a season, and even if that person has strong sexual desires. I don't need to go beyond my own situation to know that this is the case. Due to the complications and challenges with my own sexual desires, I've chosen to remain single out of obedience to God. Now, this doesn't permanently close the door to a marriage with a woman in the future, but right now, with where I'm at, that seems unlikely and perhaps unwise for my particular situation. Vocational singleness is not merely for those with a supernatural ability that makes it easier. I could go on and on. I think a better definition of singleness is given by Danny Lack in his book here. It says, the charisma, meaning gift, of singleness is a spirit-enabled freedom to serve the king and the kingdom wholeheartedly without undue distraction for the longings of sexual intimacy, marriage, and family. So this definition corrects many of the weaknesses of our common conception of the gift of singleness. First, it puts the focus of the gift on the spirit and on Christ our king, not on ourselves. Second, it defines the gift in positive terms as a freedom, not as an absence or a lack of something good. Three, it rightly orients our minds towards service to God, his kingdom, and his church. And then fourth, he acknowledges that some might still have longings for sexual intimacy, marriage, and family, but says that they aren't unduly distracted by them. And I think that is often what is more in line with reality than someone who is devoid of such longings altogether. But what I think is more important for us today is that we start thinking less about what the gift of singleness is, which is not entirely made clear in this passage, and rather focus on what God has made clear, that he has called all of us who are single to steward our singleness for his glory and to pursue contentment in him alone, regardless of whether we have such a gift. In fact, some scholars make the case that simply by being single, one has the gift of singleness. 
And in practical and pastoral terms, I actually think this might be a better view to embrace. So in light of all this, you might be asking yourself, how do I know if I should stay single? What's Paul's answer to the Corinthians who are engaged and wondering whether they should become married or stay single or engaged? The answer I've come to may not feel like the most satisfying one, but here it is. Whether or not you should stay single is only something which you can discern for yourself with God's spirit in the the community of the church. I wish that the presence of sexual desire was this hard and fast rule that we could always go by, and to be sure, it should factor into our thinking. But a proper understanding of this whole chapter would seem to tell us that this shouldn't be the end-all, be-all factor in our decision-making process. So, in closing, let me just uh, summarize several takeaways from our passage today. One, in the church... Singleness and marriage should not compete with one another. They should complement one another. Two, we are called to live in light of our eternal hope in Christ, not our earthly circumstances. This especially applies to how we think about marriage and singleness. Three, singleness offers unique advantages in our earthly lives to serve the church and proclaim the gospel. For, like marriage, singleness points to a greater reality of eternal life in God's kingdom. And then two more. Five, one's call towards marriage or singleness requires careful consideration in light of your particular circumstances in conjunction with the leading of God's spirit and the wisdom and discernment of God's people. And then lastly, regardless of whether you are single or married now or in the future, God calls each of us to steward our present circumstances for his glory and honor. Let me just take one minute for, to give you time to pray and reflect on this passage, and I'll close in prayer. Gracious Father, we come to you today asking for the grace to be able to live in light of your eternal kingdom and not our present circumstances. Lord, there are so many pitfalls when talking about these issues, and God, help us to have a healthy view of singleness and marriage. Help us to elevate both as worthy callings of the Christian life that that you can use a single person and yet you can use a married couple to glorify your name, to serve the church. Lord, help us to discern our own callings in, in regard to this. Help us to pursue your will above all else for your glory and honor. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.